Well, today's gospel lesson for the 14th Sunday after Pentecost comes from Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 8, verses 14 and 15, and verses 21 through 23. We're skipping around just a little bit. Now, when the Pharisees and some of the scribes had come from Jerusalem, gathered around Jesus, they noticed that some of his disciples were eating with defiled hands, that is, without washing them. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they thoroughly wash their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders. And they do not eat anything from the market unless they wash it. And there are also many other traditions that they observe, the washing of cups, pots, and bronze kettles. So the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not live according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Jesus said to them, Isaiah prophesied rightly about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching human precepts as doctrines. You abandon the commandment of God and hold to human tradition. Then he called the crowd again and said to them, listen to me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going in can defile, but the things that come out are what defile. For it is is from within, from the human heart, that evil intentions come, fornication, theft, murder, adultery, avarice, wickedness, deceit, licentiousness, envy, slander, pride, folly. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person the gospel of the Lord. Well, people of God, may the grace and peace of our triune God be yours today and forever. Amen. Recently, I was scrolling through pictures on my phone. I've got a lot of them on there, several of them dating back quite a few years. And as I was scrolling through looking at them, I happened to, my attention was caught by one particular picture that was actually taken about a little over three years ago when my wife and I joined together with a group of other people on a trip to the Holy Land. Now in this particular instance, we were at a place called Mount Tabor. It's also known as the Mountain of the Transfiguration, thought to be the mountain where Jesus went up and was transfigured before some of the disciples. At the top of this mountain, there is a monastery and there is a church. And as we were going there, we had the idea, what if our small group of people, there were about 15 of us, what if we celebrated Holy Communion in this place where Jesus was transfigured? Now, we, we brought this idea to our guide and he said, well, we might be able to do that, but we're gonna need to check with the people who actually maintain and run and are in charge of the church. Now, this particular church, like many of the churches that are found within Israel, within the Holy Land, are Catholic. They're predominantly the Christian church in, in Israel is Catholic. Not entirely, but most of them are Catholic. And so we wanted to make sure that we were honoring the people who actually run that particular location. So he went and he asked some of the monks that actually lived there in the monastery and, and, and maintain the church. He asked them if it would be okay if our small group went into a small side chapel and participated in Holy Communion. And the monks said, yeah, that's going to be fine. But they also wanted to make sure that if any other people who were there happened to look in and see us, they wanted to make sure it looked like everything was, was perfectly normal. And so that meant that I had to take an extra step. Now, you've probably noticed from the videos, or if you know me in general, you know I consider myself pretty low-key, fairly low church. Like right now, I'm wearing a clerical shirt and jeans. I've got tennis shoes on below the camera that you can't see. 
That particular day, I was wearing jeans and, and tennis shoes, and I just had kind of a regular polo on. But we didn't think too much of that. But the monks wanted to make sure that I kind of looked the part. So they asked me if I would fully robe. Now, again, I don't normally even wear a robe when I'm leading worship, but in this particular case, we went even one step beyond that. I had a robe, and they also asked me to put on something that's called a chasuble, which is kind of this big, ornate, very fancy cape, almost, that drapes down over top of you. And it was very, very beautiful. It was gold in color with all kinds of ornate markings on it. It looked wonderful. But again, if you know me, you know that's not really my normal mode of dress when I'm leading worship. Now, again, to honor the traditions of the people and the place, I was happy to do so. It didn't bother me in the least. And so in the, these, this one or two pictures of that moment, there I am in this full, full, all kinds of fancy dress as I'm, as I'm leading communion. Now, the thing about it, though, is what I was wearing did not make the communion more or less valid. It didn't make the promises of God which are given to us through Holy Communion more or less valid because I was wearing all this extra stuff and following the, the rules or the traditions of this place. The tradition itself was just that. But the promise of communion came through in the same way. Now, I share this story because I think the same sort of idea is at play in this, this encounter that we hear about from Mark in today's Gospel lesson. All of these individuals are gathering around Jesus. Now, that's nothing new. We continue to hear about this. And likewise, the debates that he has, the opposition that he seems to face, that's nothing new either. And here it is again. Now, we hear that the Pharisees and the scribes, which are actually two different groups of people, they come together, and they're listening to Jesus, and they notice something that his disciples do, and they find fault with it. They criticize it. Because they notice that the disciples are eating food without first going through what's known as a ceremonial washing of their hands. Why do your disciples eat with unclean hands, with defiled hands? Now, Mark gives us a little bit of an embellishment within the narration when he says that all of the Jews do this because no, they actually didn't. So let's dive into that just a little bit. Let's dive into what's really going on here. Now, first of all, let's consider the two, the two groups that are, are complaining against Jesus in the first place, the Pharisees and the scribes. Now, the scribes, they were the scholars. They were the ones who kept track of, and they knew the law, the rules, the traditions. They knew them inside and out. The Pharisees, on the other hand, they were a group of people who actually took the law to the extreme. They also knew the law, and they believed that in their piety, in the way that they practiced their faith, the best way to do that is to adhere to every single aspect of the law, whether it applied to a regular person or not. So the Pharisees would follow that. Now, admittedly, we oftentimes assign both of these different groups the idea of being the bad guys that they, all they did was they existed to find fault with Jesus and they put too much stock in this at the expense of this and there were all kinds of issues. And, you know, that's a little bit dangerous when we actually do that because I don't think that was actually the case. In fact, some scholars even take a look at this particular passage and the way that Jesus actually debates with the Pharisees as one of the Pharisees and they speculate that maybe, just maybe, Jesus was a Pharisee himself. Now, I'm not saying he was, but the way he engages with them, he seems to have some of those same thought processes. So maybe it's just about their understanding of how best to practice their faith. 
But let's continue to dive into this. The rules or the traditions or the law that we are talking about here that Jesus is engaging over dates all the way back in their history to the books of Deuteronomy and Leviticus, the books of the law, the place where, where Moses first took the Ten Commandments, that's the original command that Jesus also talks about, the command of God, in which God gives the Ten Commandments to the people as a gift to help them understand how best to live in harmony with God and in harmony with one another. It was a gift. It was a good thing. And then they went steps beyond that, and they created all these rules, these traditions, these these processes to go through. Now, this particular one that we're talking about, the ceremonial washing of the hands, this is actually something that the priests were supposed to do. Before they would be ready to do their ministry in either the tabernacle, which was the tent where they kept the, the Ten Commandments, the presence of God was there, or later on in Jerusalem when they built the temple, the priests had certain procedures that they needed to go through in order to be ritually clean to then do their ministry, their aspects of ministry. And if we really think about not only that particular instance that didn't really even apply to the regular individual like the disciples would have been, all of this idea is actually a good thing. And these various rules, these various steps, these various things that people could adhere to were intended for a couple of different reasons. One, first of all, if we're talking about cleanliness, which seems to be around washing your hands, a lot of those cleanliness laws or purity laws, they're sometimes also called, probably date back to an idea of trying to maintain the health of the person. I mean, think about it now. We wash our hands before we eat, don't we? or we wash our dishes after we're done with them. We don't just use dirty hands and dirty plates because we know uh, that, that there might be some microbes on there that if they get in our body, they're gonna make us sick. That's just a no brainer, right? And many of these different laws, if we really look at them, they actually kind of point that way to actually benefit the health, the well-being of the individual. But there's another aspect of this too. Prior to the law, culture in general, whichever culture we were talking about, operated under the guise of we have to keep the gods happy because if we don't, things will go bad for us. But people never knew, have I done enough to make this God happy? Have I sacrificed enough? Is it a big enough sacrifice? Have I, have I made them happy? Will they continue to show me honor or not? And they never knew. In this particular situation, these various rules, these various traditions, they point out the idea that the person is not going to be perfect and that in their day-to-day life, things are going to happen which will make a person ceremoniously unclean. And then these various ideas of sacrifice or these various ideas of ritual cleansing or whatever we want to talk about, because there are many, many different ones, they actually point to a procedure to help the person know, okay, if I do this, that makes me okay again. And I can once more approach God. I can come before God, or I can live in harmony again with my neighbors and with my community. It was intended to be a good thing. Where we seem to trip up in this situation And what the Pharisees seem to be tripping up and what this whole debate seems to center around is the idea of if you do not do this, then that somehow makes you bad, that that somehow makes you defiled, that that somehow makes you inadequate. 
And what Jesus is pointing out is that it's not about the things that we do. It's not about the procedures that we adhere to or the traditions that we follow or the rules that we watch out for. That's not what makes us good in the sight of God. Now, Jesus goes on to point out the fact that, yes, we are broken and we are sinful people, and it is what comes out of us that reveals that, that sin lies within the heart of all individuals, and that's just a reality that he was overcoming. But it's not about the procedures that we do or don't do. It's about the, that brokenness that manifests itself in different ways and breaks the harmony that we live with one another and with God. As I thought about this whole situation and kind of this idea behind it, the rules or the traditions, we all have our traditions that we follow. And I was reminded of something that happened very, very early on in my ministry, even before I had gone to seminary when I was just beginning to explore it. Now, the church that I belonged to was in a town my wife and, and our kids, we, we all belong to this church. But right outside that town, probably about five or six miles outside of town, there was this little country church. And it was a wonderful little congregation, but they were in the twilight of the life of the congregation. They would close a few years after this. But they actually hired me to come in once a month and provide pulpit supply and lead worship for them. Now, again, this small country church, it was dwindling. If we had 10 people on a Sunday, that was pretty good attendance. But those few people who were there, they loved the tradition of their congregation and the traditions of the ministry and the traditions of worship. And when I first began, we always joked around knowing that I was a newbie and I was nervous. And if I messed something up, I always said, if I screw something up or if I skip something, throw a hymnal at me and get my attention. And we had a good laugh about it until the day when it actually happened. Now, they didn't throw a hymnal, but they got my attention when something happened. So we had our opening song that particular day. And then in my nervousness, I skipped over something that we have already participated in here, the brief order of confession of forgiveness. I skipped right over that, and I went into the next aspect of the liturgy, the next aspect of worship. And as we wrapped that up, I heard a voice from the back of the, of, of the sanctuary, which was only about 20 feet away from me, say, hey, Scott, you forgot the brief order. Can we go back and do that? And sure enough, I had forgotten it, and we went back and we redid it, and sure, we did things out of order, but we had that, that aspect that was so important to them. Now, we had a good laugh about that, but I've reflected over that over the years as time has gone on. I've reflected about it in light of conversations that I've had with individuals here at Underwood, as well as in different places, and also my own experience, both in leading the brief order of confession and forgiveness, but also being on the receiving end, being a participant in the brief order of confession and forgiveness. Now, I love how here at Underwood, it is part of our tradition as well, that we include that. Our liturgy or our flow of worship might look drastically different than many other Lutheran churches, and that's okay, but that's one aspect that we include. And as I've reflected on it and had conversations with people, we really began to ask the question of why. Why is that so important for us? Why do we put so much stock in that and feel like we need to do it? And when I think about this idea of confession, it's telling the truth. It's being honest about who we are and acknowledging the brokenness that is a part of us. The ways when we fall short of the glory of God, when we fail to live in a way that honors God, 
or that we fail to live in a way that, that is in harmony with one another, with our neighbors, with the people that are around us, and how we, we fall short in, in, our, in our thoughts and in our words and in our actions and all these different ways. We acknowledge we are truthful about the brokenness that's part of all of us, what we call sin. But the most important aspect of that is when we are, when we are first honest about that, about the way that human nature applies to each one of us, then we are reminded, we receive the announcement of God's grace and mercy and love, which is already offered to each of us. I love that aspect, and I love receiving it as well. It's so vital. It's central in our Lutheran understanding of the way that we encounter the world and the way that we encounter God. But what's important to remember about that is even though it's our tradition to do this, it is not the brief order itself that actually frees us from sin. It is simply pointing us towards the promise of God which has already done it, the action of God which has already happened, which has already been granted to us out of God's great love and joy and delight in each one of us. Because God has claimed us as beloved children, the promise of the gospel belongs to us, that we are forgiven people. And that practice, that tradition, is simply pointing us towards that truth. It is not the truth by itself, but it points us towards it. Now, as I think about that, I think about another tradition that is so important here within our Lutheran understanding, and one that perhaps maybe even kicks in in your idea when we talk about this idea of ritual washing, and that's baptism. We call that our, our, one of our sacraments, the, the tangible nature of God's promises coming to us. And when we wash that individual, the promise is present. The promise is spoken, and we have this tangible nature. Now, the thing about it, it's not the baptism itself that saves the person. And it's not the action of the individual or the child's parents or the sponsors or the pastor. It's not the action of any of those individuals that makes it valid. It's the promise of God which is already spoken to that individual. And it is the tangible nature coming together. The promise of God is present. And the claim of God on that individual's beloved child is also present. And it all points us in that direction. That is what this is all about. That's what these rules or these traditions, these things that we do or these things that we don't do, do we understand the why behind them? That seemed to be the issue that Jesus was butting up against in our gospel lesson today when they're talking about these ritual washings. Now, folks, here's the thing that really connects all of this together, which I kind of love, which I kind of really get a kick out of. In the original language, this idea of ritual washing, whether it's the hands that the Pharisees are talking about or the washing of the various plates and cups and vessels and all that, the original word for that is baptizo. Kind of sounds like baptism, doesn't it? In all of this, may we remember the truth of the gospel, that it is not the practice of these different things that, that causes us to be good in the sight of God, but it is the action of God already calling us good, already claiming us, and already offering that gift of love and grace and mercy that was made real for us through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. All of that is what comes together to make this a wonderful and good thing that is offered to each of us. Amen.